Hey, I'm Dua Lipa, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to the second season of my podcast, Dua Lipa at Your Service. I'm so happy to be back. Season one was such a labor of love. It was incredible for me to speak to some of my favorite people and biggest inspirations. And so planning the season has been a lot of fun. To anyone who also tuned in for our summer series, thank you so much. It was a bit of an experiment, so it's been great to see such positive feedback. If you want more of these kind of episodes, then please let me know. The contact email address is in the show notes. I'm really, really curious to know what you think. As everyone who's been following our Service 95 journey knows, I love lists and I love sharing recommendations. So I'll be doing a bit more of that this season. Get in touch and let me know what lists you want from me. My notes app is full of them. The first episode of season two was a really special conversation for me. I'm just going to get right to it by introducing you to this week's guest, the activist and producer, Monica Lewinsky. We'll be with you after this. I'm so excited to introduce you to my first guest for season two, a woman whose strength, dignity, and resilience I have long admired. For most of you, Monica Lewinsky will need no introduction. But for the few of you who are unfamiliar with her story, here are the facts. You're looking at a woman who was publicly silent for a decade. Obviously, that's changed. Today, Monica is respected for her work as a campaigner and a producer. But in 1998, her affair with President Bill Clinton, while she was a young 20-something intern in the White House, almost derailed her life. At the time of the affair, she confided in her colleague, Linda Tripp, sharing intimate details which Tripp began secretly recording and later handed over to the FBI. We didn't have sex, Linda. Well, what do you call it? We fooled around. I don't know. I think if you get to orgasm, that's having sex. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. What followed can only be described as a scandal of epic proportions for the president and a living nightmare for Monica. It's been a confusing day here at the White House as President Clinton and his aides have sought to satisfy a stunned public that Mr. Clinton is totally innocent of these dangerous charges. President Clinton was nearly impeached for lying after famously saying this. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. And she became patient zero the first person whose global humiliation was driven by the internet. Everyone piled on. Monica's face was on the cover of every newspaper, and she became the butt of every late-night television joke. Her mother feared that she would literally be humiliated to death. After the initial fallout, Monica retreated from public life for a decade, eventually breaking her silence in 2015 with a TED Talk that the New York Times cited as one of the best, most courageous TED Talks ever. Today, she writes for Vanity Fair, focusing on issues related to public shaming, cyberbullying, and the Me Too movement. She's a powerful advocate for numerous anti-bullying organizations, and she's quickly amassing credits as a Hollywood producer, most notably for 15 Minutes of Shame, a documentary which looks at public shaming in a modern-day context, and American crime story, Impeachment, Ryan Murphy's fictionalized account of the Lewinsky scandal. There is so much I wanted to unpack with Monica, including her own reprocessing of the 1998 investigation, her relationship with feminism, her observations of the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial, and what her life looks like since she publicly reclaimed her own story on the TED stage seven years ago. 
a period which she says has been nothing short of a fucking miracle. We could have talked all day and nearly did. I hope you enjoy this week's very special at-your-service guest, Monica Lewinsky. Hi. Hi, Monica. How are you doing? Good. I hope you can't see that I need to get my hair colored. So <laughs> No, you look, you, look, you look perfect. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm delighted. I'm so flattered. No, I, I mean, I, I really, I can't tell you how delighted I am to have you on this podcast. Oh, I mean, thank you. It, I feel like, uh, sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, it's, I, it, it just was funny because I was with my best friend from college up in Santa mm. Barbara visiting her daughter who's in school there when I got the email about this and we were both squealing in the car. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> and then had to put levitating on and, yeah. you know, oh and then I got God. to look cool in front of her, <laughs> you know, college age daughter. So Auntie Monica is like, you know, it, it was thrilling on so many levels. And I texted her this morning. She's in Europe. And I was like, guess what I'm doing today? Oh, my God, that makes me really, really, really happy. Um, no, really, it's such a delight and an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you. Um, you know, your story is is... One that I think a lot of people think that they know, but I guess the reality is that there's so much more to the events that took place more than 20 years ago. And um, I just have to say that personally, I'm I'm just so inspired about how you've taken control of your own story in recent years. And it's a story that, that was co-opted by, you know, so many for their own personal and political gain. And not only that, but I love the way that you're using your platform to advocate for those who have been bullied or humiliated online. And, you know, I love how you're how you go about trying to encourage people being more compassionate or having a more compassionate approach to social media. And Mm -hmm. as a woman in my 20s, who has a little bit of insight in the highs and lows of, of public life, so much of this really resonates with me. And so I'm really hoping that during our chat, that you might be able to share some tips on how to survive the madness. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think that I, so much of the work that I've done personally in healing has been around compassion, compassion for myself, you know, trying to find compassion for others, which can be really difficult given certain circumstances, but it's just, it, there really is a magic to it. There's a magic to shifting. I think it can shift so many situations and it's something that we need more of in our world today. So Mm. I try to bring that online. I don't always succeed. I don't know. I tweeted something the other week that was political and a whole bunch of people are like, "Mm, so much for your anti-bullying compassion (laughs) campaign. And I'm like, okay, I get to, you know, I get to, I get to be human. You're also human. You are also human and you're allowed Uh, to have an opinion. Yes. And, um, you know, I joke a lot about like, well, People haven't seen my drafts folder of the tweets I want to send that I don't. But I, you know, I think that's part of it, right? Which is like being mindful with your click. And almost like a, a, I know this sounds sort of silly, but almost like a bank account, you know, that it's like, what kind of good are you putting in? How much good are you mm-hmm. you putting in? Are you saying positive things or trying to find a, a way to say something with nuance and context or amplifying other voices and that that all sort of puts you in the green. And then every once in a while yeah. you can, you know. You're allowed to just dip withdraw. into that jar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so it's, it's, a really, yeah. it's a really good way of looking at it. And I, and I guess I feel like now what you just said is, is something that we can, we can touch back on 
on a question that I have a little bit further down the mm. line. But I really just wanted to start with, you know, when, you know, the news of your affair with Bill Clinton broke in 1998, I don't think there was a single person on the planet who didn't know your name. So many of the most like intimate details of your personal life really played out on TV and on newspapers for months. And for the first time, it was on this new thing, which is called the internet. And you basically became stuck in people's minds forever as this 22-year-old White House intern called Monica Lewinsky, who almost brought down the President of the United States. And I think for most people... (laughs) And the beret, and the beret. (laughs) (laughs) All while wearing a a beret. Exactly. Um, Sorry to interrupt. Um, <laughs> not at all. And 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 for a lot of people, they think that your life story kind of just ends there. And I want to ask, basically, what's it like to have your life defined by one relationship that you had in your early 20s? Um, it was, it's been a challenge. Um, I mean, the last several years since 2014, it started to evolve and mold and change. But Prior to that, it was, um, I think I came into a different difficult period than 1998 after, Mm. you know, sort of once everything subsided and the sort of shock of trauma that lasted for a year, I then found myself in this new landscape and trying to understand how did I move forward? How did I try to get back on a developmental path as a young woman? And it was really through that next decade after so many different attempts and then, you know, going to graduate school and not being able to find a job after that I that I really started to realize the damage that had been done in a whole different way than what I had experienced in 98. And that was sort of one of the, again, another really dark period in my life. You know, I've been living back in L.A. now for a little bit and um, I guess it was last year at some point. I ended up driving down a a portion of a highway that I hadn't been on for a really long time. And I remembered that it was like I used to drive that to Pasadena sometimes to like purchase something at Target and then drive home and the next day drive there and return it all because it took up time during the day. I had no Mm. purpose. And it was just a very, very dark time and quiet dark in a different way where 98 was, you know, like chaos and a shambolic morass of, you know, blaring headlines and jokes and all those other things. This, Hmm. this was a quiet despair. So. Yeah. I just, you know, it's, it's so surreal even hearing you talk about this because it's such a, it's such a crazy way to think about being defined by Mm -hmm. something in your 20s. If we were defined by the early relationships at a point when we're still like not even fully formed, we're discovering ourselves, we're figuring out who we are, we're trying to understand even relationships at the most basic Mm -hmm. point. And and to have that kind of really take over your life is is really, it's been, um, I don't know, a, a lot to just kind of take in so I can only imagine what that must have been like for you and you know a a few years after all of this happened you took a step back from the public eye for a decade Mm -hmm. and you took time to earn a master's degree in social psychology among other things and then in in 2014 you chose to take to the public forum again and you published this really powerful essay on shame and survival in Vanity Fair 
and becoming a champion for victims on internet shaming. And you followed that with a really incredible TED Talk as well, which has now been watched by millions of people. Was there a pivotal moment that really encouraged you to step back into the fray? I think it was, um, you know, how change usually comes from a number of moments that sort of start forming and eventually come together and collide. And um, Mm -hmm. I think that for me as I talked a bit about in the TED Talk, there there was a moment when Tyler Clementi, who was an 18-year-old freshman at Rutgers University, and he had been videotaped, uh, secretly videotaped, being intimate with another man by his roommate, and it was, you know, threatened to be exposed online, and the shame and humiliation he felt from that led him days later to take his own life. And it became a national news story, and... Um, my mom and I were discussing it. I was on a drive home, you know, experiencing her or watching her process what had happened to Tyler and the pain and anguish of his family. That really put my mom back in 98. And I sort of saw through her lens um, in a different way, just the, the, the fear and panic, you know, that she had had and my dad as well, that they had had about me that, that worry of me taking my own life, being, you know, publicly humiliated to death. So um, I think that it was at that point that I started to realize, too, that that with the advent of the Internet and now social media had, you know, had been born, that, that there were these opportunities that public shaming was now going to be something that more and more people would start to experience. It wasn't just for people who made mistakes, you know, or public people, that, that we were starting to feast on private people's moments that, you know, could bring shame and humiliation. And I think that at that point I thought, okay, there might be a place, you know, as a poster child for having survived public humiliation, there might be there might be a place for my voice. And I think that happened alongside a lot of deep healing work that I had started Mm -hmm. to do that allowed me to be in a place where I could do that, where I could take the risks of kind of quote unquote coming back out. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really inspiring to be able to take, you know, your pain and, and what you went through to help benefit others, especially in this age of social media just becoming bigger and bigger and people also seeing other people's misfortunes or things that they went through as a form of currency to be able to talk about to you know build their own social persona really Mm -hmm. make themselves seem stronger at the hands of other people and I think one thing that's really fascinating to me is how over time we deconstruct and reconstruct events that happened to us in the past and before the whole Me Too movement you know, he said, sure, my boss took advantage of me, but I'll always remain firm on on this point that it was a consensual relationship. And any abuse that came was in the aftermath when you were made as a scapegoat in order to protect his powerful position. And something that really struck me was how feminists agonized over you, whether you were using your own agency or where you were victim or, you know, and, and, and I really wonder how this has evolved and how this experience has defined like your own relationship with the feminist movement, because for me, it completely blew me away that, you know, feminism then isn't really as how we know it now, that maybe abuse of power wasn't at the top of their list. And, and, um, yeah, yeah. you know, it's interesting because, um, 
what happened with my relationship with feminism in a way was reflective of so many different streams in my life. And one of which was healing work I did in sort of stepping back out, really recognizing that there were grudges I was going to have to let go of. And while that doesn't mean I don't, you know, still wish with all my might that there had been some support that would have uh, changed my experience. As I got older and I started to understand the duality of situations and the difficulty sometimes, there were things I started to understand too that I started to see as I was older, by no means excusing what the movement had done at the time and the silence or the contributing even. I think that was really one of the worst. I mean, to sort of... yeah, that was you the know, thing to, that really struck me was the the contribution from you know women who were you know like Kathy Rogers who was in the National Organization of Women and Eleanor Smeal from you know just president of Feminist Majority Foundation. Like I was, mm-hmm. I think while I was reading and understanding and, and also learning more about your story, it was something that really kind of struck me that you really had no support at that time when you know girls yeah. really need other women to help them out, especially when they're going through such a such a difficult time. Absolutely. I think that um, I certainly came to understand and experience that, you know, women aren't immune to misogyny. Mm. And, um, you know, as intersectionality, you know, has become more of a focus in feminism too, that we also start to see the ways women behave towards other women that really support the patriarchy too, that help keep that in place. So there's an irony there of fighting to try to change something while at the same time reinforcing the institution. And that's not, you know, that's not to say all feminists or or even all the time, but I think that that we can all become prey to those those sorts of things. You know, for me, if you are a somewhat liberal woman today, it's impossible to not find yourself in some tributary of feminism because of what's, at least in my country, (laughs) what's happening over here. Um, And I think in terms of how how our rights to make decisions about our own body and our lives, I mean, has just been decimated. And it's incredible in the worst definition of the word. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I sort of, it's it's interesting, you know, I am... I I think I got a little lost in a way in answering all of that because my mind hitched to the quote that you were talking about from the essay. And I Mm. think it was really, you know, looking at feminism and how things have changed in just even a short period, I think, like around the Me Too movement and everything, that even that idea of abuse of power, as you were saying, is something that we weren't we weren't focused on. When I wrote that essay in 2014, that was not something that we that was top of mind when we looked at those things. And within a few years, that became something that forced so many of us um, to. And I don't know because you're young, so I don't know if you're you yourself had those experiences too, where you were recontextualizing, reevaluating you know, re-examining what some of your experiences had been because the definitions were shifting. We were understanding complexities and nuance to things that that we hadn't before. We'll be right back with Monica Lewinsky after this short break. 
just recently, you know, we have the case with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, you know, mm-hmm. the trial, for example. And it seems like there's still a really special, like, vitriol for women in certain scenarios. And you've written really powerfully about this case specifically and also more generally about how social media encourages our worst instincts. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, like, how do you think that we can break the cycle of behavior that in just two decades has become so, so, so embedded in our society? Yeah. Um, I think what becomes challenging is we see a lot of this behavior at the intersection of, you know, sort of the human condition and what's happening in our world socially and also the commodification of a lot of these things that it's like we are set up in some ways to, well, I guess I, maybe there's a way to say it differently than that, which is sort of this, that it's kind of the intersection between the human condition and the online disinhibition effect, which, you know, talks about how because we're online, we're not face-to-face with people, we're not reading social cues, we're able to dehumanize people more. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, and we've seen that throughout our sort of social media or online history, like you think about um, Second Life, you know, that was sort of really the precursor to the metaverse in a way, but this idea of, you know, people going online and creating entire new personas and living a life out. I mean, there were people who got divorced in real life because of what was happening in Second Life. And so I think we start to see the ways that, um, you know, certainly on social media, how we're curating who we are, how we want to be seen. You know, I think about Instagram, you know, and you just, you start to feel inferior too, right? Like Mm -hmm. everybody else is having more fun. They're more in love. They're eating better food. Um, It's always the best bits. It's always the best bits. No one wants to show when they're having a shit day or when something's not going right or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Yeah. So, um, but I, I think too, I think going back to what you're saying with the trial, I think it really also reflects something that, that I experienced too, which is still a place in feminism that I think there's work to be done, which is around the imperfect victim, which is around sort of how do we, what happens when someone doesn't tick every box of what makes something be an easy decision and to know how to to know what the right course of action is there. Mm-hmm. I don't, does that make sense at all? Yeah, know. no, it completely makes sense. It's just what I what I think is interesting is that no matter what, somehow we managed to f- always pointing fingers at the women, whether you know there was a mistake yes. that happened there or not. Right. You know, we're we're always found with the woman kind of picking up the pieces in whatever way. Mm-hmm. You know, this year we finally saw the first conviction in the Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. case, you know, when mm-hmm. Ghislaine Maxwell was sentenced to 20 years in prison for yeah. child sex trafficking offences, which is obviously a very welcome first step in seeking justice for Epstein and Maxwell's victims. And at the time of Maxwell's sentencing, you tweeted a really like short and simple mm-hmm. message, which is now do the men. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of that really resonates to everything that's happening. It's a, You know, you're saying so much in such a short message and I want to know really where do you think this could go next? You know, I think we're um, we're living in an interesting moment of change. 
And it's so hard to remember. I mean, maybe it's always happening. So maybe these are just the big changes of my lifetime, you know, or our lifetime. And so that's what we're seeing. So it feels it has a certain weight to it. But I think that there's, you know, there are others who talk about it this way too. But if you think about change happening like a pendulum, you know, that if the pendulum still, there has to be this force that gives an initial movement out of inertia. And Mm -hmm. that pendulum is going to swing too far one way and too far another way. And I think that's how change happens, that we sort of, we go a distance, we now have that movement, we have the change and the shift in something. You know, it's like that sort of two steps forward, one step back thing, which happens in change, right? And I think that's where we are. And it's incredibly frustrating, right? It's very challenging because this isn't this isn't just one thing which becomes defined by a law that then goes into effect and now mm. change has solidified and happened. These are decisions being made in society. There are nuances, there's power, there's money. You know, this idea, of course, Ghislaine should have some punishment for having put these young women in these positions and also having, you know, allegedly abused some of them as well sexually. But I think this idea that the men who physically and sexually harmed them, that that hasn't happened yet and that it seems Hmm. unclear. It doesn't seem as if there are these other trials now lined up and we'll have to see, you know, we're kind of going to see, is it justice or or power, which wins out here? You know, how how will justice be meted out? Yeah, is it justice or power seems to be the overarching question, I think, Mm -hmm. for a lot of things going on, you know, even how you said with the Roe versus Wade and everything that's Mm -hmm. happening with women's reproductive rights. And it's just, uh, I feel like we're taking more than, you know, two steps forward and one step back. We're taking 10 steps backwards and we're holding on for dear life, hoping that something good is going to happen and change is actually going to come. But it's definitely a a really scary time. but it is. And it's yeah. I, I think too for you know, for so many people and we see this not only with, as you're saying, reproductive rights, but also sort of trans rights and the LGBTQI community and mm-hmm. you know, racial issues, that there's if you're someone who falls on a, you know, just even slightly to the left of a liberal or progressive, you know, anywhere in that spectrum, which we'd normally call a Democrat, right? Like anybody who's a Democrat is sort of assumed to be to the left of the midpoint. I think what becomes challenging is that there's so many people who are so up in arms around judging others and sort of wanting Mm. to regulate someone else's life in a way that doesn't impact them at all. At all, yeah. And that I just find shocking. That's sort of just a place where I don't know. I don't know anymore how we bridge that divide. You know, if I think my rights trump your rights and that my vision of the world, which would dictate how you live your life, is right. And I, you know, it just, it doesn't, I I don't know. I don't know how we move forward. I don't know, you know how we move forward either. I'm and, and I depressed. Guess, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, uh, this is terrible. Monica and Dua. Are depressed. Are depressed, chat. We're depressed. I know. I mean, the world, the world makes, makes us, makes I us know. feel depressed. And, and, and the thing that I was going to say earlier, which I couldn't even remember is, is the way that people just try and amplify their own public persona at the hands of other people's misfortune. But, you know, in recent years, you seem to have become 
you know, much more intentional and direct about how you use your public profile. And you're an ambassador for several anti-bullying organizations. And last year you were the executive producer of 15 Minutes of Shame, which is a documentary that's a plea for mercy for those who have been subjected to online humiliation. And it seems to me that you are exactly where you should be. Um, In fact, you said recently that, you know, the past seven years have been a fucking miracle. And I just want to know what what changed to make that possible. Um, I think it was a reflection of the kind of involution, the deeper work that I had to do that married with the times changing. When I wrote the Vanity Fair essay, it was your generation that insisted on reevaluating my story. So I Mm. think that there were probably a lot of the older generations. um, I won't blame everything on the boomers, but... (laughs) But but, almost. Maybe, you know, I'm like, Gen X, Gen X, we, we exist. Um, so, but, uh, I, you know, it, it really was, and it was fascinating because I think that these younger generations were, you know, coming to this story, maybe having heard, you know, bits and bobs of, you know, the, the, the headlines, right? Knew, if they knew me outside of rap songs, you know, then it was yeah. like, you know, just the headlines. And, and, and really, you know, as we kind of say in my family, it's like, hadn't lived through the brainwashing because that's really what happened, you know, through political forces and the media and how that unfurled in 98. So it was the younger generations that kind of said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what happened here? You know, you know, so just looking at the facts really insisted on, on a reevaluation and uh, I'll be, you know, forever grateful for that. It was, um, I, I think one of the things too, you know, and just you you were saying about, too, about my public platform and those things and, and being intentional. I do a lot of um, deep consciousness work. Like, was, mm. it's like scientific consciousness work. I don't know how to really explain it, but I've been doing it Is for, that like mindfulness or like... I mean, there's, of course, there's an aspect of mindfulness. There's an aspect of loving kindness and compassion, but it's really been around, you know, I don't know how woo-woo we want to get here. I mean, it's not, it's not woo-woo, it's science-based, but I mean, it's it just been very much about healing energy fields and, and, and trying to reorganize energy patterns in my life. Yeah. And one of the intentions there, you know, that I think I went into 2014 with was in stepping back out to be seen as my true self. And, um, God, it's weird. Um, you know, sometimes emotion sneaks up on you in a um, strange way. So I think that that was um, one of the things that was so lost from the period before was there were certainly the lies. There were the cherry picked facts. So there were all the awful things that I had done or humiliating things, you know, ways that I embarrassed myself, but there was the totality of me as a person, you know, the multidimensionality of me seeing me in context was just missing. And so I think that's been one of the most rewarding things for me, you know, um, just in terms of, 
of having a public voice. And mm. and also now my brother, my younger brother had to admit that I was funny. So <laughs> that was <laughs> like most for so much of my life. He's like, Monica, you're just, you're not as funny as you think you are. <laughs> and he's really funny. He's, he's like the funny, you know, he's, I have a very funny family actually. Um, you're very, so, very but, funny. That was definitely something that, that took me by surprise. Your sense of humor as well, even, even in the way that you write was, um, is, is really brilliant. Um, Thank you. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, uh, really good. I, I actually I have a, a pretty body sense of humor as well, but I kind of I tend to keep that just more among friends. Like my private Instagram yeah. is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little. <laughs> I can imagine that's really fun. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, I'm, and I think I'm, isn't that yeah. in a way what we all want, right? Is is we all sort of want to be seen and, and accepted for our true selves. Well, I'm really happy that you've, you know, had the opportunity to be able to to feel that, to feel your authentic self and, and to really step into your light and also share that with other people because I think people will really appreciate, you know, your your experience and how you're how you're giving back and helping others. And, you know, last year just as you know, you're really reclaiming your narrative, you accepted the producer role on American Crime Story impeachment it's a fictionalized account of the impeachment investigation and Beanie Feldstein plays Mm -hmm. you and Sarah Paulson is Linda Tripp and you know you had no editorial control and no veto and I was wondering you know what persuaded you to participate in a project that put your story back in someone else's hands and what was that experience like for you? I you know the decision was not easy for me. Um, but I also think that when you've gone through the kinds of things I've gone through, you come to recognize that any input in something around your narrative is better than nothing, you know, and to be able to work with an extraordinary group of producers and writers and actors and in that way was an appealing opportunity in that sense. And, you know, for me, I've sort of, um, people who know me are like, oh God, here she goes again saying the same thing. But like, I'm really, like, I really feel about that with everything, the projects I'm really pouring my soul into, I want them to be about moving a conversation forward. Like that's Mm -hmm. really what it's about for me. And in being a producer on impeachment, what it meant for me was, you know, the angle in that they wanted to take with this story was was looking at this from the women's perspective. From the women's perspective. Um, exactly. Yeah. I had participated also in a documentary for the 20th anniversary that was being done that was directed by Blair Foster. And she had made this amazing comment to me that in their research, all of the books about this time had been written by men. Mm. So to be a part of something like that and really, I think, you know, my personal goal with impeachment, I mean, of course I had like you know, some selfish ones. But I think my bigger goal was really to shift a collective consciousness in a way that this couldn't happen to another young person again. You know, I don't know that it's going to go from, you know, white to black in terms of a young person not being shamed ever again. Like, but obviously, it can help shift not that, the conversation. But I think, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, make people aware of that in that way. And it was, you know, it was a really challenging process it was, I'm grateful to have been involved and it's led to me doing more producing. But I think every time that I step back into, you know, 
doing something around this time in my life. There's a price to pay. But I, I also feel so much of the work that I had to do, I had realized kind of, you know, I was talking about like the, the dark period in after, you know, the sort of legal things were done, was that I had to integrate what happened to me. You know, when I moved to London for graduate school, I naively thought, oh, I'm going to go be, you know, Monica Lewinsky, the social psych graduate student at LSE. And, you know, Monica Lewinsky, the intern, she's gone. And of course, that was like a very um, (laughs) rude awakening that I really was adding an identity. And that became a big part of the work I've had to do. And, you know, I still sort of, my back goes up a little when, you know, I still get shit on Twitter sometimes and people are like, oh, she's extending her 15 minutes of fame and, oh, she just, you know, this and why doesn't she shut up about her past and if she wants to move on, you know, whatever all the things are. I like to call them hours. keyboard warriors <laughs> because that, yes. that's the keyboard yes, warriors. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, for me, moving forward and evolving is more about, you know, what are the ways that this folds into my life organically because it did happen to me. I mean, sometimes it's still surreal, um, but also it really is about integrating, not running away from or or becoming someone different. Like I haven't reinvented myself. I've evolved. Yeah. And there's a big difference to me with that. And, um, you know, you said earlier that there was like a period in your life where, you know, you basically couldn't get a job and you were just driving to the shops and back just for something to do and I'm sure you're not doing that now so what's what's your day uh, look like you know uh, both professionally and in terms of self-care I'm really interested in this deep consciousness thing but maybe we have a chat another time because I yeah I I believe in all the you know the energy shifting and how you can really work through certain things in order to find your true self so I I find that really inspiring but Mm -hmm. I I guess just on a daily basis what does that what does that look like for you? I can't say that there's sort of a a regular structure, but the majority of my time right now, I have a first look deal at 20th Television. So I'm developing scripted drama, you know, which has just been, I'm I'm so grateful for the opportunity and I'm learning so much. I'm very lucky to have a patient executive (laughs) who answers my stupid questions. I'm like, (laughs) so how long does this take? Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's been exciting. I'm, I'm, you know, working with a number of different extraordinary producers on various projects that all, you know, that I, I feel are that next step for me, you know, that are taking the things that are unique about my lens that's been shaped by my experiences to imprint that into different other people's stories. Like it just doesn't, you know, that it's, um, it's not to say I'm not going to do things with my own story ever again, because I will. It's my story. Yeah, It's part of me. But I'm very interested to tell other kinds of stories and other other people's stories. And um, so I, I feel really hopeful. Um, So I, I do a lot of that. I, you know, I do, we've talked so much or you know, dipped into the healing work. I'm very lucky because I'm in a position, you know, I'm supporting myself enough now where I can afford to give myself the kinds of healing things that I need. But in order to show up in a public way, you know, it's like I have a a normal therapist who's a trauma psychiatrist. I have my my energy guy. <laughs> I have a, you know, a therapist who's like 
also sort of a friend, but kind of on call for emergencies when it's not. And I started during the pandemic, I started doing somatic therapy. So there's that. And then, you know, there'll be other people who kind of come in and out. But I mean, that's like... That is a lot of fucking work and yeah. it's expensive, you know. Yeah. So that that takes time, you know. Mm. It's one of the things that I really hope, you know, I think we're we're very much moving towards really big public conversations around modern trauma. You know, I think trauma is the next mindfulness, you know, in that way. And um, I have to do a lot to show up. Yeah, you know, and of my course. crystals and my candles and my, <laughs> you know, so it's, um, you know, I have a crystal all the on little today. Things, if I don't, all the yeah, if I don't have one help, in my pocket. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's one of those things that I, I do hope that as we kind of move into these discussions, you know, more publicly, that it allows people to um, feel less shame around getting help, you know, and exploring all different kinds of ways that might be available to them because I think um, so much of us have been denied our recognition of trauma, mm. you know, in certain circumstances. Monica, learning just about your journey, you know, over the years and over the, the, the past couple of weeks since I, I found out that, that you accepted to do this podcast <laughs> with me has been really, really inspiring. And I'm so happy that you have had the opportunity to really take the narrative into your into your own hands and for having this conversation with me I think a lot of people are going to find this really interesting and, and the way that you've chosen to be of service to other people as well is really just uh, it, it's really inspiring and um, I really love to end my podcasts at the end with some lists some recommendations from you and I have two and one is um, I'd love to know the five best books on how the mind works. So I'd say number one is The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Two and three are both by Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, and This is Your Mind on Plants. Four would be The Feeling Good Handbook by Dr. David Burns. And the fifth is one that I am planning on reading soon, which is Emotional Inheritance, A Therapist, Her Patients, and the Legacy of Trauma by Dr. Galit Atlas. That's amazing. I, I really wanted to get your recommendations. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into that. Yeah, go with the untethered soul first. I mean, it was sort of just the, the one nugget from it that stuck with me the most was this idea that we have an inner roommate. You know, what we think of as our mind is not really our mind and we really are a consciousness and that would just like blew my mind <laughs> I was like oh wow so I mean I, I now I it was funny because I had one of those experiences I don't know if you've had this before um of I, I couldn't get into reading the book and I had two different friends say oh you know I listened to the book so I I you know bought the audio version and I've now listened to it like 10 times and every time I listen I'm I'm you know gaining something. something new yeah. And then also I'd love to know, you know, five things that you can do if you witness cyberbullying. Um, in terms of five things, you know, I, I kind of shifted a little and sort of say that the things to do when you witness cyberbullying can be if you feel safe to step in to interrupt the bullying cycle. But people don't always feel safe. So I think that's a, you know, for me, this is my opinion. I, it's really important to me that people not always think the first and only thing to do is to step in because that's not safe for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, but what you can do is you can always reach out to the target 
whether that's publicly, privately, if it's a friend, those kinds of things really they make such an extraordinary difference of when someone's a target and they're feeling so alone. There's that, there's helping people, there's reporting what you're seeing. So I think that, that those are things that people can do. And also really even beyond that, which is kind of a bigger thing. And as you mentioned, 15 Minutes of Shame, the documentary kind of touches on this, which is how do we contribute to this culture of humiliation in the algorithm? So that actually has an impact like by being mindful of what you click on mm. and what you're contributing to. Society sort of goes where the money is in that way. So if we're not giving more money by clicks, we're helping to change that. So yep. I think there are those things. And just, you know, really good advice, maybe actually. two is a, if you're the target, the most important thing is to not suffer in silence. There is no shame in having been a target of cyberbullying or online humiliation or harassment, any of those things. Um I mean, I know people experience the shame, but I mean, there's there's no shame in telling someone what happened and also trying to hold on to that idea that you're more than the other words that people say about you. So thank you so much. Monica, thank, thank you. you for your time. Thanks, Dua. Thank you for being so generous with your mm. words and for, you know, going back on your story as well, which... Um, I know probably isn't very easy every time you have to revisit it. So I really appreciate yeah. everything you're doing as well. I really wanted to thank you for having me on and tell you that I think that you're a really extraordinary young woman and I love your music. And um, as I was saying before, you know, my my best friend from college and I were squealing <laughs> in the car when <laughs> I got the invite so to do this. So I just uh, thank you for, for doing a podcast like this. And so... Thank That's my you. fangirling. No, thank you so much. It really, like I said, it, 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 I feel very lucky to have had the chance to talk to you. Oh. So this is really special for me. Yeah, thank you so much, Stuart. Bye. Bye. Thank you again to Monica Lewinsky, whose bravery and candor has stuck with me ever since our recording, and whose second list of books to expand the mind you can find in this week's issue of Service95, available to current and new subscribers who sign up at service95.com. If you're in the United States, HBO Max is making Monica's documentary 15 Minutes of Shame available for free through October, which is Bullying Prevention Month. If you go to HBO Max from the beginning of October, you can watch this important film. We'll be back next week with another episode of At Your Service. As I said at the beginning of the episode, I want to ask you, our amazing listeners, for a favor. How can I be of service to you? What lists do you want from me? Do you want travel, restaurants, movies, TV shows, albums, books? I've been filling up my notes app all summer long with new lists, so please write in to podcast at service95.com with what you'd like to hear from me. Until then, see you next week.